Then Moses gathered all the congregation of the children of Israel together and said to them, These are the words which the Lord has commanded you to do. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh day shall be a holy day for you, a Sabbath of rest to the Lord. Whoever does any work on it shall be put to death. You shall kindle no fire throughout your dwellings on the Sabbath day. We've covered this because we've seen this Sabbath quite a few times already. But the Sabbath was the sign of the covenant between the nation of Israel and God. It's not the sign of the covenant between the church and Jesus Christ. That being said, we've talked about the good principle of a day off, one in seven, to be refreshed. It's a good principle to follow, but it doesn't make us righteous before God or less righteous if our work demands certain type of overtime or whatever. But it's always a good idea to follow the principle of one in seven days off. And you might say, like, wow, death sentence for breaking the Sabbath. Well, the Sabbath for the Jews was symbolic of God's creation, but it's also prophetic speaking of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ, when they came to Jesus in the Gospel of John, they said, what's the work that we'll do? And he said, believe in the one whom the Father sent. And there is something symbolic about working on the seventh day under the Mosaic Covenant that says you're working and you're, you're violating how God's order is or you're adding to his order, and that's not acceptable. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus did the work to save us according to grace, not by human works or by fleshly efforts. So I'm sure there's something in that there that's connected to why it's so serious not for them not to have done work on the Sabbath. But you also appreciate why, to some degree, the Pharisees were so worked up over the Sabbath when Jesus did do things on the Sabbath. But remember what Jesus said to them, he's Lord of the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath. He's over the Sabbath. And if he wants to be doing great works on the Sabbath, he can do that. And of course, contextually, we understand that the Jewish leaders, they took that the Sabbath, which is commandment number four of the Ten Commandments morally, and they took that and they made over 600 sub-commandments to it. 600 sub-commandments. So the principle, you shall, shall not work on the seventh day, you'll be rested and refreshed. That's all it was to mean. It was a day set apart to draw near to the Lord and be refreshed for the human experience. And by the way, societies that take a day off or generally slow down on, on one day a week, they do better than those that don't. And it's actually something God designed to the benefit of his nation of Israel, but to the benefit of humanity. But in the case when Jesus came, he did do the healings on the Sabbath. And in doing so, he was confronting their traditions because he would say later on in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke, he said, you put, you add to God's word and you put burdens on people that I never commanded and you nullify the word of God by your traditions. And so when he did do healings on the Sabbath, he did so to refute them and not the Sabbath, but their interpretation of the Sabbath and what it meant. And of course, he summed it all up in this, that he's Lord of the Sabbath. And if they knew the scriptures, that God desires mercy. Again, contextually, it is important as they're going forward in this covenant, they're about to build their place of worship, their central place of worship. God says, hey, keep the Sabbath holy. It's not complicated. Like I always say, it's not the, the obscure things of the Bible that give me trouble. It's the real clear, simple ones. Keep it simple. Keep the Sabbath holy. Because we're going to see someone executed for violating the Sabbath as we go through the books of Moses. And it's like, it's a serious thing. So it's to our benefit. God set it up that way. Jesus expounded on it. He healed during the Sabbath. And he showed he's Lord of the Sabbath. And it really speaks that God cares about people. It's the spirit of the law, not the letter of the law. And so that's the Sabbath. 
Now in verse 4, Moses goes on and says this. He spoke to the congregation of the children of Israel saying, This is the thing which the Lord commanded, saying, Take from among you an offering to the Lord, whoever is of a willing heart. Let him bring it as an offering to the Lord. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ramskins, dyed red, badger skins, acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices, for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, unic stones, and the stones be set in the ephod, the breastplate of the high priest. So, God gave the instructions of what was to be built, and we already saw that going through Exodus thus far, and now there's the need to bring in those resources to build it. It's like if you have a, you know, an architect to build a house, and you got this great lot, you still got to build the house. You got to bring in the general contractor, you got to lay the foundation, you got, you got stuff you got to do. And so God gave the design, he gave the outline, and now they need the resources to do it. If you recall, when they were leaving Egypt, where they'd been in slavery for almost 400 years, God said that he would give them favor in the eyes of their Egyptian neighbors and that they would, they would be able to be blessed by their neighbors with their articles of gold and silver and things that they would give them when they were leaving. It, it really was a form of rep, uh, reparation, you know, like they're being compensated for all those years of slavery serving the Egyptians. And so God brought, back that, brought that justice across the plain. And so when they were leaving on Passover, they, were, they basically plundered the Egyptians and their neighbors gave them everything. And it's from that everything that they have all this right now that is needed to build the central place of worship. So just know this. If God wants to redistribute wealth, he can. He can. And know this. Things aren't always equal with God because he gives one one mina, another two minas, another five. God can do what he wants to do, when he wants to do, how he wants to do. And it's not with what he's given, but what we do with what he's given us. Our faithfulness is not based upon that we have equality with everybody. Our faithfulness is based upon that we are faithful with what God gave us. And know this. There are three things that I have found to be perfectly just and true and equal. The grave, the cross, and the throne of God. I've been thinking for a few weeks. Because everyone wants equity, equality. They want justice and they want truth. So know this night, and meditate on these things. The grave is equal. It's just and it's true. The cross is equal. It's just and it's true. And the throne of Jesus Christ is equal. It's just and it's true. So the next time someone's clamoring to you that they want justice, equality, and truth, just tell them it's the grave, the cross, and the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, you don't get anything else the rest of this night? That's the word of the Lord that he gave me during the last three weeks when I've said nothing. It's funny if you stay silent, you might actually hear something. Now, in this passage, so they plundered, and they have this stuff, and it's redistributing. God redistributed it, and now he's going to, he, he, he had them take it from the Egyptians, and now he's like, now you're going to bring it to me, because we're going to build my central place of worship. And look what it says here in verse 5. Whoever is of a willing heart. Now, wonderful verse. For whatever reason, a lot of people think that God showed himself a certain way in the Old Testament, a different way in the New Testament. And I mentioned this last week, nothing could be further from the truth. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's merciful, gracious, long-suffering, compassionate, abounding in grace and mercy to thousands, as it said last week when he revealed his glory to Moses. And he's not forcing anything on anybody. He says simply here, whoever's of a willing heart, if you want to be a part of the building of the tabernacle, you can be a part of the building of the tabernacle. 
He's not saying, hey, bring a tithe of what you took from the Egyptians to build the tabernacle. He doesn't say that. Now, he'll say stuff like that later on, and the firstborn, whatever opens the womb, is his. That's a different situation, but he's like, something really special is about to happen right here. Think about this. The tabernacle is a model of things in heaven. How many times has God ever called any people group or any individual to build something that's a model of things in heaven? Is there anything more unique being built than the tabernacle itself? Or perhaps when Solomon built the temple or when Ezra and those guys came back from the captivity and rebuilt the temple as well? I mean, it's just so unique. Like of all the religious shrines and things built in human history of false religions or whatever, or even altars built in faith like we saw Abraham and Jacob build at various times, how many times has God ever given a decree from heaven, it's a model from heaven, to build this? And for this generation, over 20, under 20, they all had stuff, and they could be a part of this. Whoever's willing. I think that's a good word for us. I think we have to ask ourselves, whoever's of a willing heart, and am I of a willing heart? Am I of a willing heart? Am I willing? Like, you want to recognize... You want to, if God's doing something special and he's giving you a chance to be part of it, you want to be of a willing heart. Think about this. Like, we're living in a time that's so unique and so rare and so unprecedented, as much as no one likes to hear that term anymore. But whoever is willing, let's be a part of what God's doing that's special. Let's, let's, let's have a willing heart to be a part of what God wants to do. I've been thinking how I'm... I've just been willing to do all sorts of things that the Lord has to do in my own life, especially thinking about like Russia and things, but then realizing if you're in Russia right now, you can't even barely travel from Moscow to Sochi anyways. But I was, I am willing, I was willing, but you know, we're making plans now like, okay, well, that's just going to have to wait because you just kind of can't, you kind of can't go to Russia right now in case you didn't know. Uh, and if you could go to Russia, like you're pretty limited how you can move around Russia. But you're going to be willing of a willing heart. It's like David, when he wanted to build the temple, and Nathan's like, oh, that's the greatest idea ever, for sure, build the temple. And then the next day, the Lord told Nathan, the prophet, you know, you shouldn't have said that. Just because it looked good and sounded good doesn't mean it is of me. And so you go back and tell David, he's not to build the temple. His son will build the temple. But as much as in his heart to build the temple, it's a good thing. But it's not for him to build it. So I think a willing heart is something we need to really think about tonight, that our hearts are willing to do and be a part of something special, whatever it is God wants to do in our life. Because sometimes you hear the Lord say, but you were not willing. Then when Jesus said, how I want to gather you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And here he says, whoever is of a willing heart. It's your choice. Just having gone through the Corinthian letters, it's like the spirit of liberty, the law of liberty, you see over and over in Corinthians, where the Spirit is, there's liberty and freedom. God's not, we'll all give an account and bow the knee, but he's, people that are outside these doors, if they're willing to come to the Lord, the way he says, come to the Lord, they can come to the Lord. If they're not willing, whoever thirsts, let them come to me. He's not going to force it. But the person that we're most interested in being willing or not willing is the person we see in the mirror, right? Because that's the one we're going to give an account for on the day of the Lord. We can choose to be a part of what God wants to do with a willing heart. Then he says in verse 10, All who are gifted artisans among you shall come and make all that the Lord has commanded. The tabernacle, that's the tent, its tent, its coverings, its clasp, its boards, its bars, its pillars, and its sockets. 
the Ark of the Covenant and its poles that will carry it, with the mercy seat and the veil of the covering. The table, the table of showbread, its poles, all its utensils, the showbread, all the lampstand, also the lampstand for the light, its utensils, its lamp, and the oil for the light. The incense altar, its poles, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen for the door and the entrance of the tabernacle. The altar of burnt offering with its bronze gratings, its poles, all its utensils, and the lavers in its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, their sockets, the screen for the gate of the court, the pegs of the tabernacle, the pegs of the court and their cords, the garments of ministry for the ministry in the holy place, the holy garments for Aaron, the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priest. This is the instruction. Okay, so verse 10, all who are get to our teachings among you shall come and make all the Lord has. So it's kind of like the classified ads for jobs, you know? All the gifted artisans come and going to be a part of this. But God's going to actually equip them to do what they need to do. We pick it up in verse 20. And all the congregation of the children of Israel departed from the presence of Moses. Then everyone came whose heart was stirred and everyone whose spirit was willing. And they brought the Lord's offerings for the work of the tabernacle meeting, for all of its service, for all of its holy garments. They came, both men and women, as many as had a willing heart, and brought earrings and nose rings, rings and necklaces, all jewelry of gold. That is, every man who made an offering of gold to the Lord, and every man whom was found blue, purple, scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hairs, red skins of rams, and the badger skins brought them. Everyone who offered an offering of silver or bronze brought the Lord's offering, and everyone with whom was found acacia wood for any work of the service brought it. All the women who were gifted artisans spun yarn with their hands and brought what they had spun of blue, purple, and scarlet and fine linen. And all the women whose hearts stirred with wisdom and spun yarn of goat's hair. The rulers bought the unic stones and the stones beset in the ephod and the breastplate and the spices and oil for the light, for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense. The children of Israel brought a freewill offering to the Lord, all the men and women whose hearts were willing to bring material for all kinds of work which the Lord by the hand of Moses, had commanded to be done. I have to be honest, in all my years walking with the Lord and having taught the Bible and read through, well, read through the Bible many, many times, dozens of times, and I just, for whatever reason, never caught that the women made all the threads they needed to do this. This really got my attention right here. Like, wow, like this is pretty key because, you know, this is the Lord building his tabernacle and he's got the women who are willing who have a willing heart and a willing spirit, he's equipped them and they're using their skills to be a part of building the tabernacle. So that veil that you would walk through to go to the Holies of Holies, the women are involved in making that and, and providing the supplies and doing all that. It's incredible. I think it's really cool. Which reminds me yet again how incredibly awesome it is how God uses women for his kingdom and his purposes. Throughout the Bible, we see all this glorious stuff and people... In this current society where good is evil and evil is good, people often think of Christianity and the word of God as being oppressive for women, but nothing's more opposite. It's the exact opposite. The gospel has liberated women. And you just have to look at Saudi Arabia, where until two years ago, a woman couldn't even drive a car under their Sharia law and their worldview of Islam. You know, here in America, where the, the remnant of the gospel carries us over, Hannah's 15 and she's getting her driver's permit. Right? And driving around Kyrie parking lot trying to figure out how to do what she's doing. That that's that's the gospel's provided that. That's the legacy of the gospel in this country. The women's rights emerged from this country. And they've taken they've gone forward from this country. 
It's, it's wonderful what the gospel does. You look at Jesus in his ministry, and you look how the women were there in a part of his ministry. You look in the book of Acts when the guys are all like, well, of course, Mary was the first one to see Jesus resurrected. It's the women who were first on the scene that got to see the resurrected Jesus Christ, and it was to the women that Jesus told them to go tell the apostles. So the women were one step ahead of the apostles on the most crucial day in human history, the risen Jesus Christ being revealed to humanity. And then there, when they're in the upper room praying, it's about 120, and it's the godly women praying there. The body of Christ needs women, and we need women to be women of prayer, women of service, and all that they bring to the body of Christ and to the human experience. And I'm very grateful for all that the women in 15 years of worship generation have done for worship generation and serving this congregation, men and women, and being a blessing to me and being a blessing to our church. We've had some incredible, amazing women be a part of this church. Just to pause on that for a moment, like, you just think of Cheryl Foster being up there in Idaho now. There's so many things that Cheryl Foster did that just got done without ever needing to be asked to be done. And like, oh my goodness, so who used to do all this? Cheryl Foster. Now, who used to take that? Cheryl Foster. Now, what happens at Cheryl Foster? And Cheryl Foster, right? And before that, it's like, so when we need Heidi Jameson, uh, Tammy McEwen, right? Like, if I really need something done at WG, I go to Tammy McEwen, straight up. And if Tammy McEwen's going to do it, I don't even think again. I don't even, Anthony, I, I have a lot of confidence in you, but just so you know, there is a higher, you know. <laughs> and I say that truthfully. If we're doing a massive event and it's like, is Tammy McEwen involved? I don't even think about it again. And so it's just really important that we understand the value and the roles too. Because there's nothing worse than a man trying to be a woman and a woman trying to be a man. Because that's not how God designed us. Jesus said, have you not read how I made them male and female? They were created male and female, gender specific, with a specific purpose in that gender identity. Paul the Apostle said in Acts 17 that he's determined our times and seasons and ethnicity. So God's determined our gender. He's determined our timeline and our ethnicity. And we need to embrace that and thrive in that for exactly who we're meant to be in the human experience. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross for all ethnicity and both genders of every generation, of every timeline. And we'll all give an account equally because, again, the grave, the cross, and the judgment seat are perfectly equal. And Christ came to provide that salvation. So we, we need to embrace who we are and to be as fruitful as we can be. There's nothing worse than a man shrinking back being a coward, but honestly, there's nothing worse than a woman trying to be something she's not. And it's important to understand that because God has an order. And there's a perfect order in the marriage. There's an order in humanity and society. I'm not meant to be the mother, and Jennifer's not meant to be the father. Right? That's how it works. So we embrace who we are the way God made us, and we are meant to flourish in that the way God's intended us to be. And if we do, we're blessed, we have a great life, we're fruitful, we leave a great legacy, and we're in glory. If we don't, then whatever we chose to do, we chose to do, free will, and whatever we get is what we get. But let God be true, and every man a liar. God's not mocked. Praise God for the godly women and all that they did here. And you did mention that God stirred their hearts. So we saw a willing heart, and then we saw stirred hearts. Now we pick up in verse 30. And Moses said to the children of Israel, See, the Lord is called by name 
Bezaliel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And he has filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom and understanding, in knowledge and all manner of workmanship, to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood, and to work all manner of artistic workmanship. And he has put in his heart the ability to teach in him, and Aholiab, the son of Asimach of the tribe of Dan, he has filled them with the skill to do the manner of work of the engraver and the designer and the tapestry making in blue, purple, scarlet thread and fine linen and of the weavers, those who do every work and those who design artistic works and Baziel and Ahiliab and every gifted artesian in whom the Lord has put wisdom and understanding to know how to do all manner of work for the service of the sanctuary shall do according to all the Lord has commanded. So these are the workers and they're going to do this and we see here that uh, Bezalel Bezalel the son of Uri, is, this, is the grandson of Hur. Now, you say, now Hur, is this, you know, Aaron and Hur, who held up Moses' arm earlier on when they fought the Amalekites. And we don't know for sure, but Jewish tradition says it is. So if that counts for anything, it says it is. And it, it says of Hur, and it says again later on in Exodus that the, he's the grandson of Hur. And it's like, well, it would seem that maybe we should know that it is Hur. And if that's the case, that's awesome because like his grandfather's up there holding up Moses' arm when Joshua's fighting the Amalekites and then here he is, the grandson. And by the way, if you're her, what could be more glorious than see your grandson being called by the Lord to do the work of the tabernacle? And let's be honest, for all the people that have ever been called to do anything great for the Lord or unique, especially construction, like actual physical stuff, again, it's a tabernacle. You talk about being superhuman and spirit-filled. There's a spirit-filled man who's called by the Lord and is empowered by the Lord intellectually, like the day of Pentecost when they spoke in tongues and they could speak in languages they'd never spoken. He's equipped by the Lord intellectually to understand the physics, the dynamics, the science of what he's doing. And not only is he equipped by the Lord to do it, he's actually equipped to be able to articulate it to other people so they can do it with him. Did you catch that? Look at that right there. It says, he has put in his heart, verse 34, the ability to teach. God put in his heart the ability to teach the information. <clears throat> so if you get really smart people, there are geniuses. There are people that are really, really smart. And God made them that way. So it's like you can develop your skill set, but some people it just comes really easy. But a lot of times, well, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say there's a fine line between a genius and insanity. He used to say that. You're just like, you know, you're right there on the edge. So if it's not the Lord, you could go over the edge and just go completely loony. And human history is filled with that. But then there's genius people that figure out how to put a spaceship to go around the moon and land on the moon, right? So you just, it's really smart people. But one of the challenges with really smart people is that they can talk where people they're teaching can understand what they're saying. You ever notice that? And you can do that as a pastor. Like I so often listen to a study. I'm like, I just taught something like I presume people know these things. That's why I always do like three to five minutes of review because I can't, you, need, you always need to teach the lowest denominator, right? They always tell you that. Like, so you need to know. Well, can you imagine you're, you're going to be building the tabernacle and these things and you're being equipped supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, but you need help. And so God's actually equipping you how to articulate it. He's making him a super teacher of how to do these skills and this stuff. I just, I think it's really cool. So you have willing hearts, you, you have 
stirred hearts, and now you have equipped hearts to do what's going on. Could be the study on Saturday. I'm not sure. I'm thinking about it. But God equipped them to do it. Supernatural to do a practical thing. And so there's this dream team of people equipped by the Lord and being guided by one who has the spirit of the Lord to teach them in the Lord on how to do the work that they're doing. We say it all the time. It never gets old. Where God guides, he provides. And what he's calling you to do, he's going to equip you to do. And it's not your ability, but your availability. And as we make ourselves availability, available, he'll give the ability. Now, we do want to do like we read in John chapter 2 where they filled the water pots and then Jesus turned it to wine. Like, we want to fill our water pots. But really, like, the Lord, it's, it's availability. And then he just, he can just do amazing things. Where it's not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Now we pick it up in chapter 36, verse 2. Then Moses called Baziel and Ahiliab and every gifted artesian in whose heart the Lord had put wisdom, everyone whose heart was stirred, to come to do the work. And they received from Moses the offering which the children of Israel had brought for the work of the service of making the sanctuary. So they continued bringing to him free will offerings every morning. Then all the craftsmen who were doing all the work of the sanctuary came, each from the work he was doing. And they spoke to Moses saying, the people bring much more than enough for the service of the work which the Lord has commanded us to do. So Moses gave a command, and they caused it to be proclaimed throughout the camp, saying, Let neither man nor woman do any more work for the offering of the sanctuary. And the people were restrained from bringing, for the material they had was sufficient for all the work to be done. Indeed, too much. I'm not sure you can find this anywhere else in the Bible or human experience. Can you imagine a church service, especially the big churches, you know, hey, stop giving, right? (laughs) It's too much. Right? I mean, it's like, this is crazy. But what's kind of interesting to think about in meditating upon this is that these people came and they gave. They were moved. But it's noteworthy that they were moved. Some were over 20 and some were under 20. And the ones over 20 would never go into the promised land because they didn't have the faith to finish. The ones under 20 would go in the promised land. These things they built would last for centuries. And what they did is honorable and was blessed and was there for centuries and centuries and centuries in the service to the Lord through the Levitical priesthood with the tabernacle during the time of Judges and the building of the temple during the time of Solomon around 930, 920, 910 B.C. This is 1500 B.C., so like 600 years coming toward us, right? And then hundreds of years after that. It's an interesting legacy because it's a legacy of a willing heart and availability and really being stirred up in such a way that you just, you're in it and you really want to be a part of it. But somehow, within a year, when they're told to enter into the land and the spies bring back the report, they choose to believe the bad report instead of the good report, those over 20. So there's a little bit of a, you know, as much as it's an exciting story and a neat story, It's also a sobering story. It's a sobering story that as much as we can do something good today, let's make sure we're doing something good tomorrow, right? Because finishing strong is finishing strong. And we can never rest on our laurels. I think there's something in human human nature, especially when you get a little bit older, like your 40s or 50s or 60s, people want to 
look back and say, oh, that, that was great or whatever and, and tend to want to rest on their laurels. I don't want to rest on my laurels. I, I, I want to be in the moment of today and I want to be challenged for what I'm going to do tomorrow. And so do you. Yeah, that was cool. Like going to high school in the 70s was a trip, right? You know, like it was, it was different, right? You didn't go to high school in the 70s. I went to high school in the 70s. Some of you did. Uh, I'm not in a hurry to go back to high school in the 70s, by the way, just so you know. But like whatever happened then and whatever seemed good is good and whatever here is here seems good. They all came. They were, they were moved by the Lord. They had willing hearts and they kept bringing it. But somehow, like, this was just the beginning of what God really wanted to do. And for everyone over 20, and I know it's kind of like a negative application, but for everyone over 20 who was turned away giving, they, 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 this was an easy thing to do, I guess, but it was a harder thing to enter into the promised land when God said, go into the promised land. I just believe the report. There's something to this story that is beautiful, but there's something to it that's kind of eerie and sobering. And I, I have to point that out. Now, indeed, it was too much. But it does bring up an interesting thought as well for, in a positive sense. Of course, sowing and reaping. You can never outgive God. And we know, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we sow, we reap. And if we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. And just speaking last night with someone from another church, this church has sown bountifully, and we are reaping bountifully. And to be honest, I can't wait to step into eternity and see the fruit of this church and all that we have sown. It's amazing. This church is so generous. And I figured it out, like, you know, when you, as you get older, you kind of find like your niche. Okay, what's my niche? Or you build your brand and then you, you get a little bit older, like you retire from sports, you got to rebrand yourself, right? You got to get a new brand. So you're Michael Jordan and then now you're going to, you came back and played for the Wizards, but that's not really your brand. So you retire. So then you, you, you buy the Wizards. That's what you do. And you own the Wizards. This is what Michael Jordan did. But you, you know, it's not like he's never been that great of an owner, right? So he's, they had the Charlotte team and they can't make the playoffs. And like, He's, you know, and he, he's a great underwear guy, right? Like, he, the, the underwear commercials are pretty funny with Michael Jordan, you know? And now his, his whole thing came out when there's nothing on TV for three months. It's, it's, you know, the final dance was the number one watch thing with Michael Jordan in that last year with the Bulls when they won it all. And, uh, but that's still going backwards, you know? And you, you build your brand, and you think of, like, who you are, and you got to keep rebranding yourself. And that's what people think anyways, right? Like, so, for example, Aunt Mary got let go, and she's been with a career builder, and she met with a career builder, and she's redoing her resume. She's rebuilding her brand. She's my age, Jennifer's older sister. And she's like trying to, she met with a career counselor, and they're redoing the thing. Well, here's our brand. We're givers. That's WG's brand. You know, they say when you start a church, there's two types of people you for sure need in the church, evangelists and givers. If you have evangelists in your church and givers, you'll do just fine. Because evangelists will bring people out and givers will, will, will get things going and allow you to meet your expenses. <laughs> Believe it or not, there, I, there's another ministry. It's not in the Bible. I call it the ministry of seat occupation. It always helps us. There's people in the building when people come to church, right? You know, like, it, it's kind of silly, but if you plan a church, you'll understand what I'm saying. It always looks better if you come to the hotel in Vermont and there's at least 20 people sitting in there as opposed to three people. It just, people feel more comfortable. But evangelists and givers. And certain people, we're told in Romans 12, there's different gifts. First Corinthians, there's different gifts. We've all got different gifts. And if we have individual gifts, certain churches have a great strength. Look at Harvest Crusade and Harvest Ministries. What Harvest has done with evangelism 
throughout the United States for 30 plus years. And just Franklin Graham, Greg Laurie, his brand. And what about Franklin Graham and Samaritan's Purse, benevolence, compassions, hospitality? You see, like that could be one person's gift, but that's their ministry, Samaritan's Purse. That's what they do. And just reading this on the pause, I thought, this really is who we are. Like, we're not a large church numerically. Our impact would seem wonderful people, and your average church is 100 people in America, but we do have the radio ministry with K-Wave, so we get a lot of people that talk about us being on the radio and all that. But the gift of giving in this church has been phenomenal, and we just keep sowing and sowing and sowing and sowing, and that's kind of what we do. That's, I'm not going to tell you to quit giving because we just keep moving it. We just keep moving it. I went to Russia, and God said, ask for Russia. I asked for Russia, and all kinds of extra stuff came in. We released it all to Russia. Now ask for the Ukraine. Now ask for Venezuela. Now ask for just So I, I just, okay. And the water fills up, and we're like, we pour it out. And we try and pour it out faster than it can fill up. And like, you're trying to pour it out. This just keeps filling up. So thank you. Because that's who we are. That's our identity. The brand of WG in the year of our Lord 2020 is selling bountifully. So praise the Lord. Because the generous spirit is often rare. When people retracted during COVID-19, we expanded. The Lord literally, we went through Genesis together. And in the famine... Isaac sowed bountifully in the famine. That's what we're told in Genesis 26. And he, the man sowed, began to sow in a famine. And the Lord prospered him, and he became very prosperous, and he was a prosperous man. The word is used three times in two verses. In a famine. Abraham panicked in a famine. Jacob faced a famine. And woe was me, Right? Excuse me. And then Joseph delivered his family in that famine. But Isaac sowed bountifully. And what were we told about him when he sowed during the famine? He reaped a hundredfold. Isn't that amazing? In the famine, there's lots of famines in the Bible. And Isaac is right there. He's just like, when the famine came, he's like, all right, now it's time to get going. Now's when we sow in the famine. And we have sown in the famine. And we have prospered in the famine. And praise the Lord. And I can't tell you, speaking on behalf of many people who are in foreign countries that we have blessed during this time, that they have had people retract support for them. They have thanked us that we've actually expanded support for them. And it has strengthened their faith to be faithful in who they are and where they are and what they're doing. Now, that's in cases where they know us. Because as you know, it's our general policy. We don't like people to know we're the ones providing for them. Like Jesus said, the right hand not knowing the left hand. That's how we like to sow. We're not legalistic on that, but that's our choice of preference but sometimes in giving people have to know it's coming from us because it's the only way we can get it to them but there's people out there that have just been blessed with like significant blessings and they don't even know but that's the beauty because it's more fruit for us in eternity so we keep sowing for the one who sows bountifully will they'll reap bountifully correct god's not he doesn't change so now we come forward and now what we're going to do is I have a fair bit of text, and there is an application from this, so I'm going to read a little bit, and it's just going to be like in the book of Ezra when they read the scriptures, and they all stood in the rain and listened to the scriptures. You can sit, but I'm going to read, and I'll point out a couple things, and it's moving us towards something in a final application, but I think if God has this here, it's important for it to be here. For it to be here. 
So he told Moses what he needed to do, and now we read about them actually doing it. So bear with me, and hopefully I'll keep the words clear and crisp. Verse 8, this is the building of the tabernacle. So they have the supplies. They're told to do it. They've got the supplies. They've got the guys that can do it and the women, and now they're going to do it. Then all the gifted artisans among them who worked on the tabernacle made ten curtains woven of fine linen and of blue, purple, scarlet thread with artistic designs of cherubim. Those are angels. They made them. The length of each curtain was 28 cubits. Remember, a cubit is a foot and a half. So that's your measurement to kind of keep in mind when you read this. 28 cubits. And the width of each curtain, four cubits. So that'd be like six feet. And the curtains were all the same size. And he coupled five curtains to one another, and the other five curtains he coupled to one another. He made loops of blue yarn on the edge of the curtain. On the selvage of one set, likewise, he did on the outer edge of the other curtain on the second set. Fifty loops he made on one curtain, and fifty loops he made on the edge of the curtain on the end of the second set. The loops held one curtain to another, and he made fifty clasps of gold and coupled the curtains to one another with clasps that it might be one tabernacle. He made curtains of goat's hair for the tent over the tabernacle. He made 11 curtains. The length of each curtain was 30 cubits, and the width of each curtain, four cubits. The 11 curtains were the same size. He coupled five curtains by themselves and six curtains by themselves, and he made 50 loops on the edge of the curtains, that is, outermost in one set. Then he made a covering for the tent of ram skins, dyed red, and a covering of badger skins above that. For the tabernacle, he made boards of acacia wood standing upright. The length of each board was 10 cubits, and the width of each board, a cubit and a half. Each board had two tenons for binding one to the other. Thus he made for all the boards of the tabernacle. And he made boards for the tabernacle, 20 boards for the south side, 40 sockets of silver he made to go under the 20 boards, two sockets under each of the boards for its two tenons. And for the other side of the tabernacle, the north side, he made 20 boards and their 40 sockets of silver two sockets under each of the boards. For the west side of the tabernacle, he made six boards. He also made two boards for the two back corners of the tabernacle, and they were coupled at the bottom and coupled together at the top by one ring. Thus he made both of them for two corners. So there were eight boards and their sockets, 16 sockets of silver, two sockets under each of the boards. And he made bars of acacia wood, five for the boards on the one side of the tabernacle, five bars for the boards on the other side of the tabernacle, and five bars for the boards of the tabernacle on the far side westward. And he made the middle bar to pass through the boards from one end to the other. He overlaid the boards with gold, made their rings of gold to be the holders for the bars, and overlaid the bars with gold. He made a veil of purple, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It was worked with artist, artistic design of the cherubim, the angel. He made, for, he made for it four pillars of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. With their hooks of gold, he cast four sockets of silver for them. He also made a screen for the tabernacle door of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine woven linen made by a weaver, and its five pillars with the hooks. He overlaid their capitals and their rings with gold, but their five sockets were bronze. Chapter 37. Then Baziel made the ark of acacia wood. So we had the tabernacle previously. Now we have the things that go in the tabernacle. Two and a half cubits was its length, a cubit and a half its width, a cubit and a half its height. He overlaid it with pure gold inside and outside, made a molding of gold around it. He cast forth four rings of gold to be set in its four corners, two rings on one side and two rings on the other side. He made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold, and he put the poles in the rings on the sides of the ark to bear the ark. He also made the mercy seat of pure gold 
two and a half cubits with its length and a cubit and a half its width. He made two cherubim beat of gold, so he beat them, he designed them. He made them of one piece at the ends of the mercy seat. One cherub on the one side and the other cherub on the other side. So the two angels facing each other over that mercy seat. He made the cherubim at the two ends of one piece with the mercy seat. The cherubim spread out their wings above and covered the mercy seat with their wings. They faced one another, two cubits with its length, a cubit its width, and a cubit and a half its height. So it's not that big. And he overlaid it with pure gold, made a molding of gold all around it. Also he made a frame of handbreadth all around it. He made a molding of gold for the frame all around it. He cast for it four rings of gold, put all the rings on the four corners that were in its four legs. The rings were close to the frame as the holders for the pole, poles to bear the table. He made the poles of acacia wood to bear the table, and he overlaid them with gold. He made of pure gold the utensils that were on the table for its use, its dishes, its cups, its bowls, its pitchers for pouring. So, of course, we studied the table of showbread. That's the table of showbread. Now the lampstand, verse 17. He made the lampstand of pure gold of hammered work. He made the lampstand. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornaments, its knobs, its flowers were the same piece. And six branches came out of its sides, three branches on the one side and three branches of lampstand on the other side. There were three bowls made like almond blossoms on one branch with an ornament knob and a flower. And three bowls like almond blossoms on the other branch with an ornament knob and a flower. And so for the six branches coming out of the lampstand and on the lampstand itself were four bowls made like almond blossoms, each with its ornament knobs and flowers. There was a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches extending from it. Their knobs and their branches were of one piece. All of it was one hammered piece of pure gold. And he made it seven lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays of pure gold, of a talent of pure gold, he made it with all of its utensils. Verse 25, so that was the gold lampstand, now it's the altar of incense. He made the incense altar of acacia wood, its length was its cubit, its width was a cubit. So this guy's small. It was square, and two cubits was its height. Its horns were of one piece with it. He overlaid it with pure gold, its top, its side, all around, its horns. He also made for it moldings of gold all around it. He made two rings of gold for it under its molding by its two corners on each side as holders for the poles with which to bear it. And he made the poles of acacia wood and overlaid them with gold. He also made the holy anointing oil and the pure incense of sweet spices according to the work of the perfumer. So we'll stop there. So here in the second half of chapter 36 and all chapter 37, we get the details that it's being built. And again, we think, okay, God gave Moses the instruction for these things. Then the invitation went out with a willing heart to bring the supplies to do these things. And then we get the details of these things actually being done. There's significance in that. Let's think about this. There's significance in that because sometimes God tells us we're supposed to do something. And then we begin, we, we need to move on and act upon it, things you need to do to do it. But then we actually have to do it. It's kind of like when the Lord put in my heart, go to Russia. And then I had to get the passport. I had to get the plane tickets. I had to do all these things. And then I actually got to get on a plane at LAX where the light says Moscow. And like, am I really getting on a plane? Like, you feel pretty bold when you do things like this until you're right there at LAX. You're like, I'm getting on a plane going to Moscow. Like, no double clutching now. I mean, you're all in and you actually have to do it. 
you have to go to Russia and you go and you meet people and you pray with people and you go to the pastor's conference and then you go to Salicard and you meet these people. Like there's being told what to do and then bringing it together to get ready to do it and how it's going to be done. But then you need to do it. Or as they say in business, you need to close the deal. You need to do it. You need to get it done. And I believe that's what God's showing us here. Because he could have admitted in the book of Exodus, in these 40 chapters, stuff that might seem redundant to us, but is important. You know, it's not easy getting a passport to go to Russia. I hope you know that, or a visa to go to Russia. It's not easy. There's a right way and a wrong way. It's probably like trying to go to a lot of Middle Eastern countries. There's a right way and a wrong way to get a visa for a lot of countries, especially with an American passport. There's details. There's lots of little details, right? If you've ever traveled, there's details. If you've started a business, there's details. You, you go to college, you take small business management. Like my brother's, who's been in the flower business for 40 years, he's thinking about doing pizza business. Like when you go to the Orange County Fair and they got pizza, and he's been studying the, how you do this, and you get, the, you get like a Sprinter van like all the millennial hipsters like, and you get your pizza ovens in there, and there's a way to do it. There's a business model. You go to school for a week in Colorado, and they show you the business model. Then they show you these are the pizzas you have. You have the vegan pizzas and all this stuff, and this is how you do it. And this is where you do your business, and this is the average profit, and like this is how you do it. See, there's details in doing things right, and then there's actually the execution of doing them right. The road to ruin is paved with all kinds of business plans that didn't work out because people just gave up. You know, a lot of those positive speakers and motivated speakers, they'll tell you more from that. If you just do something for three years, you'll be a lot better at it, and you'll probably be successful at it. <laughs> Spanish on me. I just did it long enough that just by dumb luck, I'm somewhat proficient in Spanish and I'm getting better at uh, Russian. I've learned if you just stay at it, you know, and not quit, but actually see it through, there'll be success in what is to be attained. This is doing the work. You got to put in the work. This is doing it. This is making it happen. And that's why this details here. We need to get things done. There are tasks that need to be done. And there just comes a day when you just got to wake up at 6 a.m. and get it done. Or go to work second shift at noon and get it done. Or go to graveyard shift at 11 a.m., 11 p.m. and get it done. Because of dreams and plans, there's no shortages and even inspirations from the Lord. But, and even if you have the vision from the Lord and even the resources, we still have to get it done. And the end of our life, we're going to look back and ask ourselves, did we get it done what God wanted to do? Or as it says in Romans 15, did we seal the fruit? Because when Paul said, I no longer have a place in these parts, he said, when I go to Jerusalem, I'm going to deliver this stuff and I will seal the fruit. So when you walk away from five years of Calvary Costa Mesa, did you seal the fruit? Did you seal the fruit? Did you do what you're supposed to do with the Lord, with your life. These details are like life. You got to get the new real ID, right? Well, the DMV's all messed up right now. I got a notice from the IRS saying my mom owes a little bit of money in her tax return. It was dated like May 14th, and it needs to be paid by like May 21st. I got it like June 19th. Brass sockets, silver hooks, and gold poles. There's all kinds of details in life, right? I'm like, well, the best thing I can do is just pay it. Make sure she owes it. She did. 
and pay it. Like, that's how life's working right now. And of course, you know with COVID-19, a final word, don't be in a hurry with anything, right? Do not be in a hurry. Would you go to the bank in a hurry right now? Like, you just cannot be in a hurry with COVID-19. You just can't. And if you have to wear a mask, don't take it personal. It's like, whatever, I hate my mask, but okay, whatever. It's gotta be patient and be diligent. It's a time to be patient, it's a time to be diligent. Let me say that, final word on tonight. What we're in right now, it's a time to be still and prayerful. It's a time to be patient with everybody and everything, for even a fool's kind of wise when they hold their peace. And the multitude of words, sin's not lacking. But it's also a time to be diligent to do what we know we're supposed to do. Or as my wife always says on these difficult phone calls, what would you like me to do next? What's the next step? Is it a brass socket? Is it a 10-foot acacia board? Is it gold on the pole? What would you like me to do next? I listen to my wife make these calls. I was like, what's wrong with you people? Figure it out. My wife's like, so what would you like me to do next? I'm like, oh, that actually works better. Because you actually hear what they're saying, and then they'll tell you what you need to do next, and then you do that, and then they'll tell you what to do next. So it's a time of patience. It's a time of being still. And it's a time of being diligent. Make according to the pattern. Get it done.